This is your host, Jessica Ortner, and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment, because happiness is not a destination. It's an adventure. Welcome to Adventures in Happiness. Welcome to episode 10. So you might notice a big change. It says Adventures in Happiness with Jessica Ortner. There is a name now missing. My dear brother. Nothing happened. We're not getting a sibling divorce. We didn't get into an argument. We're totally fine. He has so many projects to work on. And I think that when I started this podcast, as you learned from listening to the first episode, he was the one who really encouraged me to just start. And so I'm happy he gave me that little push, that little kick in the butt. And he will still be with us on some episodes. But this way, I don't have to hunt him down to record an intro after I do an awesome interview and I can come and I can share even more with all of you. So he will be uh, around during future episodes. All right, big news first, personal news. Last episode, episode number nine. Wow, I just shared everything. I remember the day I sat down in front of my microphone. I had zero script. I just wanted to share what my year was like. And I wanted to do it in a way that didn't sound like self-indulgent or egotistical or whatever. Um, It's weird to share something so personal and not know the people that are going to listen. But the reason I shared was that oftentimes we see people, whether they're authors or speakers or whoever, and we begin to idolize them and when we have a hard time we begin to shame ourselves we not only are having a hard time but we give ourselves a hard time over having a hard time and so I thought sharing my story I hope that it uh that it helped you guys and the response was amazing that's why I'm bringing it up again you guys have been so incredibly kind so many messages on Facebook. It's been really beautiful to read. So thank you very much. Um, and no big update. I just am really happy. Things are great. I'm leaving in two days to go to Russia with my mom. We planned a mother-daughter trip. I read the biography of Catherine the Great and I loved it. And then I just became fascinated with the culture and my mom and I wanted to do something a bit outside of the box. So uh, in two days off we go to Russia. So this is going to be my last episode for like two weeks and then I'll be back. I know the thing about podcasts is you got to be consistent. Once I get back, I have some awesome people lined up. All right, so let's talk about today's interview. Uh, Oh my goodness. Okay, so let me kind of rewind a second. Last Thanksgiving, I spent Thanksgiving in Paris with Dr. Christian Northrup. I've been mentioning her so much on this podcast. She's a close friend and an incredible author. And Patty Gift, who is um, one of the head people in Hay House, my publishing company. And we decided to go to Paris together. And on this trip, Christiane did not stop talking about this man, Mario Martinez. It's like every other word was about Mario Martinez. We had long dinners, and in Paris, dinners are long and delicious. 
long dinners uh, talking about this man and and everything that he teaches. So to give you a little bit of a background, Dr. Mario Martinez is a clinical neuropsychologist and in 1998, he developed his theory of biocognitive science. Now, don't hear that big word and get intimidated. Basically, what he does is he has spent years traveling the world and studying the ways in which cultural beliefs affect health, happiness, and longevity. So how your family and how the culture you grew up in impacts your health and your happiness. I found this fascinating, especially since I come from immigrant parents. We moved from Argentina when I was just a baby. Um, I think it's incredibly enlightening to see what are we picking up around us that we haven't even noticed. You know, some of us, um, if you grow up and you don't know any other way, then you don't feel the same inspiration to change. But when you're able to, to pause and kind of take a step back to view your world in a new way, to become aware of the way you've been viewing your world based on your family, it's incredibly enlightening, really interesting. So I hope that you enjoy this interview. I made a reference in the beginning about getting him very drunk, and it's because I've been trying to schedule this interview with Dr. Martinez for a while, and I had to reschedule twice with all of the moving across country. And so I told him, uh, the first time I rescheduled, I told him I would buy him an Argentine Malbec because he lives in Uruguay and I'm often in Buenos Aires and it's just a river away. Uh, and since I scheduled twice, I think I owe him a night of drinking. He is such a great sport, really intelligent man. Enjoy. Last thing I'm going to say before we jump into the interview, if you're enjoying this podcast, let me know, leave a review. I do this for free. I do this for fun. The more I know that it's helping people and that people are enjoying it, the more inspired I am to put the work in and bring you guys this awesome information. So you've already been so generous and so kind with me. Sending you so much love. Here we go. Enjoy the interview. Hey, Mario. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. We finally connected. It's I, wonderful. I, I owe you like a full night of drinking, not even a bottle of <laughs> wine. Like I said, I'd get you. Thank you so I'll much for you up on it. letting me reschedule. <laughs> of course. How's the sound? Um, the sound is fantastic. And um, good, I good. just I'm just going to go and start recording right now. Okay. So it's a very casual podcast. Um, it's a lot of fun. I was just talking to my brother and I was mentioning to him that when I went to Paris with Dr. Christian Northrup, we talked about you all of the time. It was like <laughs> Mario Martinez and croissants were like the topic of conversation in Paris. <laughs> and so I went with you. <laughs> you. So you basically were on this trip with us. And um, I've been reading your book, uh, The Mind-Body Code, and it's like covered in every page is like half of it is underlined. I had to start to... <laughs> I had to like be careful because I was like, I'm basically underlying this whole book. I need to, I need to slow down. <laughs> well, but that's wonderful. It's it's so good. Really, really so good. So congratulations on just such an amazing Thank you. piece of work. And uh, the next book is going to be with your people, Hey House. Hey House, yes. I'm so excited yes. about that. I'm so, yes. You're, yeah, you fit right in. And, and reading your book also gave me a greater understanding of what I do with tapping. Oh. Um, I felt like 
you shared a lot of things that I teach in greater depth than I've, I even knew myself. And so I, I really enjoyed that. So I want to start off by just giving people an introduction of what you do. You know, you developed a theory called biocognitive science. Um, I hope people don't get scared by science or <laughs> bio, the word biocognitive no. because it's, a very, it's actually... We'll clear it up. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll clear it up. So can you, can you tell us about this theory? Uh, yes, biocognitive science uh, is really a way of bringing what I call the uh, third component to mind and body. We, we know that uh, mind and body are interconnected and the mind affects the body, but what affects the mind? And that's really what I'm bringing in, which is culture. The mind learns, our perception is shaped within cultures. And, and the culture is really very subtle, but very powerful. It's really the collective belief that a group, except from the time they're in the uterus to the time they die, uh, because, of the, uh, because of the collective beliefs, our biology will adjust to that. And then we begin to live our biology based on the collective beliefs, thinking that that's really all there is, that, that it's really the biology of, for example, if, you, uh, if in your family there's cancer, then you're going to die of cancer, things like that are, that are, that are belief systems rather than, than actual biology. So when someone talks about how they have breast cancer in their family or any, any type of illness and they say that, that it's genetic, do you, are you saying that it's not just genetic, that even just the knowledge that this disease is in your family does something to your mind which helps your body manifest that? Is that right? Yes, because uh, the, the DNA can't, can't change. That's the blueprint. What mm -hmm. changes is the expression of genes. We can actually inherit the expression of genes of a family by uh, people that were in the Holocaust, for example. They, they, the uh, people that are the next generation inherits the propensity for the genes ex to be expressed with stress and so forth. So what happens is that if you have a family with a particular illness, all you have is a propensity for that illness to be expressed. Now, it's up to you, and, and not to blame yourself on it, but it's up to you to really be able to break away from that. And one of the reasons why it happens is because the family with cancer has a collective belief about cancer. Uh, and then you, uh, you begin to live out that uh, condition that actually increases the probability of becoming cancer. So what happens, one of the ways to break from that is to begin to look at people in your family that have not died uh, of cancer or people that have not developed cancer and then look at how, what, how, what's different about them. Those are the outliers. Those are the people that defy the portals, either aware or unaware, and they don't buy into it and they may die of something else, but, but not necessarily cancer. And I'm oversimplifying it, but it's really important to realize that, that these portals, what I call these cultural portals of middle age or cultural portal of an illness of the family, those are constructed culturally, not biologically. Right. So there's, there's different uh, ways that our culture impacts us. And there's the culture of the family. There's also the culture of our, our then community, then being, you, you talk about in your book, the difference between Western and Eastern culture. I want to get a little bit, for those who are listening to this, um, some people might be following you, some people might be a little bit skeptical. 
what was so interesting to me about your book is the amount of science that you had. And you talk about the different ways that the brain performs depending on where, if you grew up in a Western or Eastern culture. So can you talk about that? That what, what do we see when it comes to the brain and how it performs depending on what culture we're raised in? Well, when I studied neuropsychology, uh, it was the brain is basically a, a universal brain. On the left side, most, most of the left side is related to language, most of the right side is related to visual spatial and so forth, and the frontal lobe has to do with planning, and that's partly true. But when you begin to look at what's called the cultural neuroscience, which actually looks at, the, at how the brain shapes uh, and how our, our culture shapes the, the perception that we have, you begin to see that in the East we have a, more of a collective consciousness of a collective perception of things. And in the West we have a, an individualist perception of things. So if you give a test, for example, to someone in the U.S. and you ask them to look at things uh, in a picture, they will tend to remember the person or the individual, the, the uh, figure, rather than the background. And they, they will have a better memory of the figure than at the background. If you give that same test to someone from a collective culture, for example, let's say uh, the Philippines, uh, Korea, China, they will tend to remember the relationship between the figure and the background. So they're more collective, it's more contextual than the individual. If you give someone, if you have an MRI, a functional MRI where you're scanning the brain and you ask people to speak about themselves, the middle of the prefrontal lobe will light up. And then if you ask them to speak about their mother or their friends, another part of the brain lights up. But if you, this is in the U.S., but if you give this to a person in, again, Asia, which is more collectivist, then you ask them to speak about themselves and that part lights, lights up. You ask them to speak about their family, that part continues to light up. So it's a collective perception rather than an individual perception. And on and on and on. So there are many, many things. So basically... Your culture will determine how you're going to see things, and your brain will shape to that, and will actually, uh, cr you can create a, a biology in your brain. Uh, people, for example, people who, uh, in London, most of the streets, as you know, are, are names. So there was a study that was done in London and also in San Francisco, looking at what happens. The hippocampus is a part of the brain that, that creates uh, the memory of context. Uh, you remember addresses and things like that by the context. So they looked at taxi drivers in London, and they found when they, when they did an MRI, so they could see the, the brain like a video, that the hippocampus of those taxi drivers is a lot bigger than other people who don't have to have that part exercised of the brain. So uh, the hippocampus develops because it has to by what the context sets up for it. it. It's important for me to know an address because when somebody gets in my cab, I have to know the address. So what that does is that, that actually shapes and enlarges the hippocampus. Well, it's fascinating. So what you're saying is that culturally what we need to focus on and the values we're taught literally begin to impact the way that our brain works. So all of our brains don't work the same. And that's very no. different than what what is more mainstream, right? You're saying that the belief for a very long time was we all have the brain, it just functions the same. Yes, it's just that the, the, the brain has the propensity to learn the language that the child happens to be born in uh, the uh, country, the brain has also the propensity to adjust to the culture beliefs that, that that particular culture will set. And that's extremely important in, in health 
and it's extremely important in longevity. Right. So you you said before that most people know that the our emotions impact our body, yet I think it is it kind of is new. You know, obviously I've been hearing it for years, you've been studying it for years, but I think the conversation about how our emotional health impacts our physical health is actually a new one. I think a lot of people have a physical problem and they still simply go and just focus on the symptom and trying to find a medication to deal with the symptom. So when you're talking about how cultural beliefs and our emotions impact our body, can you tell us a little bit more about how you actually see this show up? Well, for example, you, um, you're wanting to get healthier. You want to live a healthier lifestyle. So then you set up these objectives, which are you're going to eat better, you're going to work out, you're going to meditate, you're going to have good thoughts, and all the things that, that are actually necessary for good health. But if you don't look at the cultural context that supports or enhances that, then you're missing part of the picture. So for example, you are doing all the right things, you're eating well, and you're taking care of yourself, but then we go back to that example of, uh, in your family, uh, we're not healthy. Uh, in your family, you're, you're, you're going you're gonna to die young. Well, that context doesn't support all the things that you're doing. And what it does is it, it sabotages your um, efforts to actually break away from, from that portal that says uh, this is how it is in your families. So it's very important not only to create the objectives and the behaviors, but look at the context that, that may or not uh, support it. So how does someone begin to do that? Say there's someone listening and they say, I really want to get healthier, but I keep finding myself um, sabotaging my own efforts, or it just feels like a constant struggle. With this information, what can they begin to ask themselves to begin to gain clarity on what exactly is stopping them? Well, the first thing is to realize that this is a learned process and anything that you learn can be unlearned and changed. And second, that the culture editors, people that I call them culture editors, and these are people that this culture gives them power to dictate the collective reality. For example, a teacher in a classroom, a, a doctor in a, in, a, in a hospital, a clergy in church, and so forth. From day one, we begin to pay much attention to those people. Uh, for example, when you're born, you, you're hungry, and you have discomfort from, the, from being hungry, and all of a sudden you see either a breast or you see a, a bottle, and that takes the discomfort away, and you begin to see the symbol. Gradually, you begin to associate it. Even though you don't have a, a word for it, you begin to see the symbol of the mother or the bottle as relieving you. So that has a physiological effect that you begin to have. The symbol becomes a, a biosymbol. So, for example, if you're in a culture, you're told, um, well, if you go out in the rain, you're going to catch a cold. Then you'll go out in the rain, and most likely you'll catch a cold. Why? Because rain is associated with danger. Just as if you're watching uh, something that, that's dangerous. And anything associated with danger, you begin to secrete cortisol and norepinephrine and epinephrine, all the hormones that actually uh, reduce immune function and sometimes they even stop the immune system. So you go out there and you catch whatever's going on. Then you come back home and you catch a cold. There you go. The rain caused the cold. So that's how it's created. How do you uncreate that? How do you step away from what I call beyond, uh, within the pale thinking. First, again, by realizing that this was learned. Second, by realizing and recognizing who are the people that are in a very subtle way supporting that. Who are the people that if you're middle-aged and you tell them uh, 
you want to go back to college, they say, well, that's silly. You should be planning for your retirement, your middle age. Those are the people that admonish you and put you and keep you in your place. So the first step is to realize it and then to say, okay, if I break from that, I'm going to disappoint some people. So the first thing to do in limit setting is a two-step thing. First, you set the limits. And second, the most important, you give people permission not to like your limits. And also, you might have to pay the price of, of, uh, of, of being admonished or being excluded from the group or not being accepted in the group. And that's extremely necessary for you to be able to break away from it. Okay, this is what I want to dive into because in your book, one of the things that I underlined was you wrote, I have seen an alarming number of patients who chose to surrender to their illness and in some cases die rather than assert their emotional boundaries. So this concept of emotional boundaries really fascinates me and you're touching upon it now. Do you believe that that's one of the reasons that we often succumb to certain illnesses or diseases or struggles in our lives? It, it, we break it down and it really is a, a question of boundaries Yes, I think that, uh, as you know, I talk about the causes of health. One of the causes of health is setting healthy emotional boundaries, but it's also not setting them what can actually contribute to an illness. Not the cost, but the contributor. But I'll give you an example Please. of a patient I had so you could see what I'm talking about. This patient had a, an autoimmune illness, and uh, it, was, uh, it, could have been, it could be terminal. So I look at her situation, and she's... Uh, in her, in her 60s, and she's living with her daughter, a very controlling, manipulative daughter, and the daughter's husband, and they had a child. So she was basically the nanny. She didn't have much of a life because they would go on vacation, and she would have to take care of the, of the grandchild and, and on the weekends. and Well, it, it was that kind of thing. So she was a caretaker, a person who takes care of everybody except herself. So as we start setting limits, and she starts saying no, she starts saying to her daughter, no, I'm sorry, this weekend I have plans. You need to make other plans. Uh, she began to improve her condition. Some of the symptoms began to disappear. She began to get healthier and healthier. But then she calls me one day and she says, uh, you know, I don't think I'm going to be coming back to a therapy because uh, my daughter got really upset with me and she, she told me that I didn't love my grandchild. Plus, I have too many things to do. I have to do the laundry. I have to do... So <laughs> she stopped coming and she died. Uh, that's, a, that's an extreme example, but you have variations of that. And many doctors will tell you that, that they actually they, they see a patient unwilling to make changes, even if those changes are going to save their life. Because it, it, we were taught that it's very, very difficult. And it's also very inappropriate to go against authority. Because you, 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 your culture will teach you guilt. It will teach you you're a bad person or you're, or you're someone who doesn't deserve all these good things because you're, you're making me unhappy by setting limits. Yes. And, and this is why I see tapping is so helpful to so many people when it comes to physical pain and different diseases because it helps you deal with the emotional aspect of things so you're able to then create those boundaries. Let's talk a little bit more about these emotional boundaries I feel like I, I see that this is – well, let me ask you. Do you find this to be incredibly common? Do you feel like emotional boundaries are, is one of the most common challenges people are facing nowadays? And if someone's listening to this and they resonate to the story that you just shared, they resonate to this idea of 
putting everybody else before themselves and never wanting to rock the boat or upset anyone, if they resonate to that, what can they do with that knowledge? Uh, well, the first thing is to, uh, there, there's a technique that, uh, as you know, I teach in the book, uh, so, but I'll give you a very specific example. Let's say that you you want to set limits with a partner, or you want to set limits with a mother or father, and you, be, you go into a, a state of relaxation. Uh, that's the first thing you have to do. It, it, it's, it's like creating the foundation. And the reason is that if you, if you do it intellectually without really getting into a level of relaxation or, or contemplative state, your, your nervous system will protect you from feeling any anxiety, so you won't really learn very much. You won't be able to apply it. It'll stay in your head not in the mind-body. So you get yourself relaxed and you plan to say to your partner, uh, no, I'm not going out tonight and I don't have a migraine. It's just that I don't want to go out tonight. And then as you say it in your head, check your body and you're going to find some tension in your body. You're going to find the objection and you're going to find the fear of that person not accepting you or, or, or causing a problem for you. Well, instead of trying to get rid of that uh, discomfort, you Pay attention to the discomfort and let it, and watch it as if you're watching a wave go by or, or a cloud go by and allow it just to pass on its own. Because the mind-body code for letting go of something is by observing it rather than the trying to get rid of it. So as you do Wait, that... Oh, you have to say that again because that was really good. Sure. The mind-body code for letting go is to observe rather than to try to let go. Because if you try to let go, you're putting an intention that takes a lot more neurons and neuromaps maps to actually change it. If you observe it, you let it pass, it lasts less, and then you can replace it with something else a lot better, a lot faster. So uh, as you let it pass and it passes, then you do it again. And you do it again and you keep practicing till your body-mind begins to get used to that there's a possibility that someone may not agree with you and you will survive that disagreement first. And second, you begin to look at who were the people that punished me, who were the people that, that, that actually, in a very subtle and sometimes not so subtle way, didn't allow me to set my limits. They told me that my limits came second, not by words, but by the action. So as you keep practicing that, you do it till you feel more comfortable, and then you do it in actual life, and then give the person permission to not like it. That's I can't overemphasize that. You have to get permission for somebody not to like it. Yes. Yeah, that's that's huge. And I hope that this is sinking in for people because I see this happening so often that we don't want to create boundaries. We don't want to upset other people, but we need to understand the consequences of not setting those boundaries and how devastating they can really be on, on our physical health. Mario, one of the things that you um, talk about as well is the comfort of compliance. And I thought this part of the book was fascinating. And you wrote, replacing the comfort of known misery with the discomfort of unknown joy can be one of the main obstacles on your path to wellness. So when it comes to wanting to create change in our lives, whether it's setting those boundaries, um, stepping up and, and allowing ourselves to be seen and to shine and to be successful a lot of that can be uncomfortable, even though it's what we want, it's uncomfortable because it's unknown. Can you tell us about this kind of tricky thing of, of comfort and compliance? Uh, yes, because uh, <clears throat> what allows us to feel safe is predictability. So if you're in misery, you can predict that you're going to be miserable. So it's there. Well, I have a bad day today and tomorrow I'm going to have a bad day. And so you get used to that by the predictability of the condition. But then 
you want to change something and you begin to feel joyful, that's not predictable because that's not what your belief system allowed you to, to accept. So it's something new. Something new causes turbulence and the turbulence causes disruption and you think that it's something bad or it's so uncomfortable that you go back to the misery so you can feel comfortable. So it's important to realize that the turbulence is neither good nor bad. It's just a condition that reduces our predictability but it allows us to learn and move forward. Without turbulence, there's no learning. And I don't mean turbulence in a bad way. Turbulence is a change, anything new. You're used to bad things, that something good happens, and there's turbulence because it's a, a, a disruption of the expectation. And that's important to realize, that disruption of expectations are opportunities to learn and to move into a better place. It's important to remind ourselves when we're making a change and we do feel uncomfortable to not judge it and think that we're doing something terribly wrong for having that feeling. Exactly. To, to accept the turbulence because the, the brain is set up to be challenged, constantly challenged. And that's how it learns. And I don't mean challenge in a good or bad way. We, we give it a good or bad label, but it's a challenge. Uh, if you, for example, it, it, let's say that when something is out of context, uh, turbulence comes in. You're, you go to a church or temple, and instead of seeing a, a priest or instead of seeing a monk or instead of seeing whatever it is in your religion, you see someone who comes out dressed as a clown. And all of a sudden, that's out of context. The brain begins to create premises. You, you feel anxiety because the predictability was broken, and then you begin to, the brain constantly generates premises. Okay, I'm in the wrong place. This is not the circus, so the, the preacher must be crazy, and on and on until finally the uh, preacher will stop and say, okay, I'm dressed this way because it's Halloween, or I'm dressed this way because I wanted you to pay attention. All of a sudden, he gives it a contextual relevance, and the, the anxiety is reduced. So you realize that what happens is the brain will look for premises. It, it'll start generating premises, premises to you. Find something that has relevance, and all of a sudden, then you go back. And then there's another premise, but see, it's a learning process. So rather than looking at life, how difficult it is, look how nothing is uh, constant. Well, the brain was not made for constancy. It was made for challenges. And that's what's exciting. Yes. What you're saying is that if we can look at it as exciting instead of judging it and being fearful, if we can contextualize, if we can do that, then what you're saying is when we have those moments of turbulence, it, we're okay with them. We don't go into a complete fear state. Yes, but it's also important not to see it just as, as positive psychology. Oh, I'm feeling so bad. I'm so happy. It, that, that doesn't work because the immune system doesn't buy that and your biology doesn't buy what you have to. You have to embody it. Say, I don't feel well right now. This is very uncomfortable. I'm afraid. And all the actual human uh, experiences that you have. And then you say, okay, I'm, I'm feeling afraid and I'm feeling uncomfortable. Now let me see if I can go into this to see what happens, see what I can discover. And the key, look at it as if you have a little compass and when you're in linear uh, mode, like everything is moving in a linear way and you go to a place and you go to that place and you expect things to happen and they happen, that's linear. Okay, mm -hmm. then all you're doing there is confirming, confirming this, confirming that. All of a sudden, chaos comes in, a turbulence comes in. You cannot continue with that compass. You have to change it and move it into exploration, discovery. If you don't, it's just like being in Miami with a map of New York. It doesn't work. It's a totally different uh, instrument. So what you do is when turbulence comes in, you stop confirming and you start discovering. 
And that by itself begins to reduce the anxiety because you're saying to the brain, okay, we don't have to confirm anything here. What we have to do is discover, yes, go into that, novelty. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, one of the things that I've um, often said in, in my course and I wrote in my book is um, replace criticism with curiosity. Yes, that's so good. So yeah, so when you're having a hard time, we just criticize ourselves. So instead, just get curious as to what might be actually coming up. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, another thing that I want to touch upon is the fear of success. We know about the fear of failure. I think a lot of people have written many books about it. I think something that doesn't get enough attention is the fear of success. And culturally, oftentimes, we're scared to succeed because it makes us different. Can you talk about how different cultures react to success and why we may be holding ourselves back because of a fear of success? Yes, that's a, that's a great question and a very important question. Well, if you look at it, uh, cultures initially were set up to protect you, what, what they call within the pale. The pale is an old medieval English word that means the, the enclosure, or it could be the fence or the walls. And it was necessary to keep you within the pale to protect you against the enemies, against uh, wild animals, and, and that uh, there was a collective uh, reality that was lived, and there was a collective consciousness to work for the group. But then, if you go beyond that pale, then you're no longer serving the group. You're beginning to serve yourself, and, and you cannot succeed within the, uh, beyond the pale. You have to succeed within the pale. So it's already built in that you can't go beyond uh, even the word beyond the pale is considered something negative. It's just like excessive. It's too much. So you're taught that. The other thing you're taught is to don't get too, don't get too big for yourself. And you're taught what I call pseudo-humbleness. A little girl says to her mom, look, mommy, look how beautiful I am. She says, no, 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 darling. You, don't, you never say you're beautiful. You wait for other people to tell you, and then you can deny it. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's set up for failure. So then it's a pseudo-homeless, and you'll, they'll say, oh, you, you're really bright. Well, no, I'm not that bright. You know, anybody can do this. So you, you're constantly going against your worthiness, against your excellence. But then something happens by your deeds or by good fortune or whatever, and, and, you, and you find yourself in a place of, uh, of excellence, in a place of uh, having fulfill something that you didn't think was possible, then all those admonitions come in and say, wait a minute, what, what am I doing this? What, how, how are people going to accept me now? And you notice how heroes, the news about something bad happening to the hero is a lot more powerful than when something good happens because the culture loves to bring you back to place, uh, to keep you, to humanize you. Because if, if, you, if you have a hero and that hero all of a sudden you find that can get depressed, you say, oh, I can humanize that person. Now I can really like that person. And in, and, and in my theory, the key is to humanize the person with their greatness and with their failures. To humanize them when they, when they reach a greatness, you humanize them by saying, if they can do it, I can do it. So all of those things, you see how subtle they are, but then they, they oppress you into coming back into your mediocrity rather than to moving into your, uh, into your greatness, which is really uh, the, our, our birthright. It seems like that one of the biggest themes here is the fear of disappointing others. Do you feel yes. like we keep ourselves sick, we don't succeed because we want to fit into the the culture that we're living in? And if that's so, how do we begin to feel more comfortable with standing out and with disappointing people? Um, well, uh, all those things are contributors and not 
the cause of illness, but they are contributors. Yes. One of the things that's important, and that's what that I, I dedicate a whole chapter to, is so important, is to begin to create what I call the subcultures of wellness, because we're social beings. You can't be a, a weird, successful person. You have to have people that actually support your 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 success, and people that if you say to somebody, uh, well, I'm 70 years old, and I'm thinking of uh, going back to college. Great. Why don't you do that? I think it's great. What do you want to study? That kind of support of beyond the pale behavior is extremely important. So one of the things that you have to do is begin to create the subculture gradually and begin to drop or set limits with the people that are obstructing your your success and people that are obstructing your your excellence. So the subcultures of wellness are extremely important to be able to maintain your gains. So you're saying that it's not about just going against our culture and standing out. We actually have to create a different culture, a different community that supports the goals and the, the type of life we want to live. Yes, because we're, we're social beings. We're cultural beings from day one, and that's how we survive and we thrive. So what you do is you begin to replace gradually, and, uh, and you begin to look what I call the anchor friends or the anchor family. They keep you down. They keep you uh, sunk and it doesn't mean you have to, let's say you have a, a toxic mother and you say to yourself, well, I, I, I don't want to give up my, mo my mother. Uh, well, that doesn't mean that you have to continue to be toxified by your mother. So what you do is you create the benign boundaries. And one of the ways to do that is it's a real simple um, procedure where you actually take two negative emotions. I had a patient who, who would see his mother every single day and she's a very toxic person was always telling him how bad he was and how he would never make it and, and so every day and he felt required to see his mother because that was love love is to see your mother every day so as he began to set limits we did a little uh, technique that i use which is okay you take guilt and you take resentment to calibrate the middle ground what i call the, the milligrams of love that that person can that the person can handle so I asked him, if you see her every day, how do you feel, resentful or guilty? And he said, oh, I feel very resentful. And if I don't see her, I feel very guilty. See, that's black and white. Mm. Okay, so now let's go and create some gradients of this. If you see her once every three months, how would you feel? I would feel guilty. If you see her every day, resentful. So what would be your middle ground where you don't have to feel so much resentment and so much guilt? And he said, well, if I see her maybe three times a week, for about an hour and really spend quality time with her for about an hour, I could feel good. Okay, that person's um, benign boundaries become that. And what he was telling me, and you'll see this as you try it, was he was with, of course, the mother didn't like it at first, but what is she going to do? She could adjust to it. Because the time that they were spending together, the quality went up, but he found that after about an hour, that's as much love as the mother could handle. And she would say, uh, you're not looking so good. Uh, and, and she would start the toxicity because she was saying, I can't handle anymore. Please go, you know, in, in essence. And he wouldn't. So the moment that he, she started with the toxicity, okay, mom, I got to go. I love you. I'll see you next Wednesday. That was it. Well, not only does she not like it, but she adjusted. And he began to have a much better relationship with his mother. Now, there are people that you do have to drop. These are the emotional vampires that you have to drop out of your life. It's like saying that you want to be happy with cancer. You know, you, you want to get rid of it. So th those are some of the ideas that you can begin to, to apply, uh, the public can begin to apply when you're wanting to make changes beyond, beyond the pale. Right. It's really helpful. Um, I want to talk about self-worth for a second. Can you 
tell us what you believe self-worth is. How, how would you define it? Um, in, in psychology, we, we talk a lot about uh, self-esteem, but that's not enough. Uh, and, and the mind-body code, what I talk about is three aspects of worthiness. The first one is what I call valuation self-esteem. And that's the amount of value that you give yourself to accept good fortune without getting sick or without sabotaging it. Good fortune of good health, uh, wellness, and, and um, love. That's the first one. That's valid, valuation self-esteem. The second, the second is competence self-esteem. How good are you at what you do? Whatever it is, a father, mother, a carpenter, whatever. How good are you? And the third, which hardly anyone talks about, is affiliation self-esteem. Who are the quality people that you bring into your life to celebrate your joy? And it's very simple. In biocognition, we try to take real complicated concepts and, and make them simple so people can apply them. It's very simple to bring each one up and bring each one down. How do you bring valuation self-esteem up? Simple. You keep any kind of self-caring commitments that you make. It goes down if you break them. So, for example, you say, today I'm going to sit and I'm going to meditate and I'm going to relax. And somebody calls you and says, um, Jessica, let, let's go to the movies. Uh, and you say, no, I got, I'm going to stay home and spend some time with myself. No, let's go to the movies. And you go. You broke your self-caring promise. The evaluation self-esteem goes down. If you keep it, it goes up. Competent self-esteem, simple also. If you continue to learn, become better at what you do, it goes up. If you stagnate and just spin with what you know, it goes down. And the third, affiliation self-esteem, it goes up when you increase the quality of the relationships that you have without concerning yourself with the quantity, more the quality. It goes down when you increase quantity without quality or you maintain those who don't have the quality to support. Because remember, affiliation self-esteem is to find the people that can actually celebrate your good fortune and their good fortune. But if those people are not willing to do that, then that part of self-esteem goes down. This is why you might find a, uh, an extremely uh, effective and, and efficient executive who runs a, a multi-billion dollar company and gets home and the partner uh, beats him up or be beats her up emotionally because that person has high competence self-esteem but low valuation self-esteem. It's so interesting. I think it's fascinating that you said that you need someone that will celebrate your achievements. That's the kind of culture that we need to create. I remember, I've shared this story before. I was at dinner with a bunch of girlfriends and one of my friends, Alex Jameson, um, she said to all of us girls, she said, you know, how many, when you think about when you're having a really hard time, say it's three o'clock in the morning, your car just broke down, you need someone to call, or it's three o'clock in the morning and you were just so incredibly upset. How many people can think of someone that they could call to support them? And all of us were like, oh, yes, it's very easy. We all have someone in our mind that we think we can that can support us in a moment of crisis. And then she says, how many people from that list you, can you call if something really, really good happened and you just want to tell them the good news? And that <laughs> yes. number went down and all of us were shocked. And it's yes. so true that we connect so much through pain but are we finding, are we creating a culture where we're also able to connect through joy? Yes, and that's, that's the uh, subculture of wellness that we need. That it's connecting through joy, and it doesn't mean that it's, that it's a, a Pollyanna world, but it, it, what it means is that, the, that life is really 
joy is the, uh, the rule and misery is the exception unless you turn it around and you make it uh, the opposite. So yes, uh, you want people that, and, and as you're right, it's not easy to find people that are going to support your joy and your greatness uh, because it's a lot easier to, we, we have to humanize people through their suffering and, th and through their flaws. And in the subculture of wellness that I'm talking about, you humanize people through their excellence. And then you become excellent yourself because you're co-authoring. It's very contagious. Yes. Yes. And we also have to be that friend. We have to be that friend that when something great happens to someone else, we celebrate that. And we can even experience the same amount of joy um, as if it was happening to us. Why do you think, what is the switch in mentality? What makes it that that one person might see a friend become successful and suddenly they feel jealous or scared that they're going to be left behind and someone else sees a friend being successful and they feel that same amount of joy as if, as if you know, their success is lifting up their own life. Is there a certain belief or something that, that's the, you know, that creates that tipping point between one or the other? Yes, because uh, the one that, that is jealous or, or that is not willing to participate is someone who has been taught limitations in their worthiness and limitations in what they can achieve. So if they see someone achieving something that they don't think they're capable of achieving, the only way that they can feel comfortable is to bring that person down to their level or to feel jealousy. Jealousy is a very uh, inefficient emotion. It's only efficient if you say, okay, I feel jealous, so therefore I'm going to do something about it so I can get what I want. That's the only functional way of, of, of using jealousy. But what happens with jealousy usually is that you put your energy into the resentment and all the negativity that goes with jealousy rather than either celebrating what's going on with that other person or you moving up to a level that you can actually imitate that person. Yes. So do you find that if we celebrate someone else's success, then we become more comfortable ourselves with being successful? Yes, I think so. And I'll tell you something that, uh, that I learned from a Tibetan Buddhist. I had a, a, a Tibetan Lama a teacher, and, and they have a lot to teach us, but we also have a lot to teach them. And in the four immeasurables that they, they talk about, one of them is empathic joy, which means that you uh, practice, you can do a meditation and practice feeling joy for the accomplishments of others. And, and at first it, it feels a little weird, but when you're doing it with somebody um, that you like is a lot easier, but when you do it with somebody neutral, then it's more difficult. And then when you feel that you're doing it with your enemy, it's even more difficult. But here's, here's a cautionary uh, point that I want to make. The Tibetans don't have a word for emotions. They, have, they see emotions and cognition as one. So when they do the empathic joy or the foreign measurable, they, for example, they send um, joy to their enemy, an enemy that has raped their nuns, that has burned their temples, and they don't feel what's very important in, in psychoneurmonology, which is righteous anger. You have to feel the righteous anger before you can feel the empathic joy. They don't feel that. And the only way that the body can actually give you what you want, you're saying, I don't, I don't want to feel negative emotions, I don't want to feel any anger. The only way that the body can take care of that is by anesthetizing you with endorphins. So you begin to secrete endorphins, endorphins, and then the chronic expression of endorphin, there's some research that's beginning to suggest that the chronic expression of endorphin begins to affect the metabolism of glucose, and there's a very high incidence of uh, diabetes type 2 in Tibetan llamas. Wow. 
That's fascinating. So I want to touch upon this really quickly, righteous anger. So often we feel that emotion, anger, and we think that it's that it's negative, that it doesn't serve us, and we might even feel guilty. We think that we need to jump right into forgiveness. So what what is righteous anger and why is jumping right into forgiveness maybe not the best thing? I mean, you've just explained it with that story, but touch a little talk a little bit more about this righteous anger. Okay, righteous anger is another it may sound unusual, but righteous anger is another one of the causes of health. Righteous anger is contextual. It's not something to be experienced in all contexts because then it becomes chronic anger and it becomes toxic. So righteous anger is the protection against innocence in yourself and in others. It's an expression of dissatisfaction when you're being abused. It's an expression expression of protection. So it's contextual. It's something that has righteous in a sense, not not of uh, being self-righteous, but righteous that it's correct to express something that has um, that has been, been an aggression against your your goodwill or an aggression against your 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 uh, goodness or your your innocence. It's it's necessary. Your body will respond well to that righteous anger. But if you use it in context that, for example, uh, pseudo uh, uh, that pseudo indignation. Let's say that you can you go to a restaurant and you. You ask the waiter for a particular wine, and they bring you the wrong wine, and you actually uh, will insult that waiter. That that causes immunological problems. But if you express anger when someone, for example, insults your child, that is immunologically enhancing. That's so fascinating. So, how do we keep ourselves in check to make sure that we're feeling righteous anger and not? the type of anger that can be really debilitating and, and harmful to our health? Well, that, that's a great question because, uh, um, as you know, I talk about uh, what I call archetypal wounds, that there are three types of wounding that, that a culture can do to us. Uh, one is that you can be shamed, you can be abandoned, or you can be betrayed. Those are, those are the only three that I found, and it's more than enough. But And, and each of them has a healing field for, for uh, shame, honor, for for uh, abandonment commitment and for betrayal uh, loyalty so you have to be you have to as you practice these methods and you you identify your wound or you identify your healing field you you begin to differentiate between anger that's appropriate for the moment or anger that's coming from an archetypal wound and then you can begin to differentiate and you begin to see okay this anger here feels right uh, or this anger is really an overreaction from my wounds of uh, of uh, shame or whatever it is. So that, that's one of the ways to do it. And the other way to do it is to ask yourself when, when you get angry, am I, am I saying how dare you say this to me? Usually that comes from just uh, that, uh, that self-righteousness instead of self-righteous uh, uh, anger. How dare you say to me that uh, I'm such an important person. It's an ego-based kind of thing. You'll see that it's not righteous anger. Righteous anger uh, actually grounds you not righteous anger gets you out of balance. So you begin to get a sense of the mapping that you can do to identify one from the other by practicing and, 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 and seeing the different contexts. Also, righteous anger doesn't last. You do it, you express it, and you let it go. You go to another context. If it lasts, then the ego is the one who's angry, not the self. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Mario, this has been such a fascinating conversation. And I know that you travel around the world. You're 
continue to write books. I'm looking forward to your next book. Out of everything that you teach, if there was one thing that you really hope that people take away from our time together, what would that be? To find your excellence and give yourself permission for other people not to like it. Ooh, I love that. Find your excellence and give yourself permission to for other people not to like it. Brilliant. Uh, Mario, before we wrap up, I just have some uh, silly and fun questions that I ask everyone that I interview. Um, these vary from show to show, and but some are the same. Um, the first one I'm going to start with is if you want to have a lot of fun, what is one of the things that you do when you really want to let loose and have some fun? What do you do? First, not to take myself too seriously because <laughs> yeah. that stops it all the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay. So that's number one. But what else? What do you? You live in Uruguay, right? Yes. So yes. what do you do? And do you do something fun in Uruguay? Well, uh, the, the, one of the things that, that keeps you uh, young and and keeps you with a sense of humor is that people confuse growing older with with being more serious. And one of the things that I find with centenarians is they they keep this childlike sense of humor and this this childlike curiosity. And they get excited about anything. They see something, look how beautiful, it's raining, I'm going to go out and, and dance in the rain, that kind of thing. That's important because if not, gradually you begin to think, well, I'm too old for this. Uh, well, no, I have to take myself seriously. Or work is, is not play. Work is You work hard and play hard. Those kind of, again, cultural admonitions will tell you that to have mo- too much fun, there's got to be something wrong. You, you, you can have fun, but not too much. So you have to be, be able to question those things. And here, for example, I... Uh, I find that people go out to dinner at, at like in Spain and other Spanish places um, at 10:30, 11 o'clock at night. So at first I thought this is crazy. So now I get all excited because if I'm doing something and I realize it's 10 o'clock, oh, just the beginning of uh, dinner. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it must be fascinating just living, uh, doing so much traveling because you study anthropology and how different cultures work. I'm sure that you would get so many insights just by going out to dinner wherever you are in the world and seeing how people interact. Yes. That's great. So, okay, another uh, deep and profound question. If you could be any kind of animal, what would you be and why? Let's see. That's a really good question. Well, any any animal that could fly, like an eagle or hawk or any animal, because it, it would be incredible to be able. I've had, you know, I'm sure people have these vivid dreams where you're flying, and it's an incredibly liberating uh, sense so to be able to experience flying without being on a plane. Yes, I love that. Wonderful. Well, Mario, it has been a real pleasure uh, to have you. Thank you so much for being patient and rescheduling with me. And I really hope that everybody goes and picks up this book, The Mind-Body Code. I've, I've really loved it. And I, I know it's a book that I'm going to go back to again and again. If people want to learn more about you, where can they go? Uh, you can Google biocognitive uh, science or, or just uh, biocognitive.com. Or uh, Facebook, uh, the, the main page Facebook is uh, the Mind Body Code, and I have quite a few uh, videos there and, and many, many things that, that, you can, that you can look into free. Or uh, Dr. Mario Martinez, uh, the um, YouTube channel, I have over 30 uh, C- CDs and, uh, and videos that you can download for free and learn quite a bit about uh, biocognition. Perfect. Well, hopefully uh, next time I'm in Argentina, either I'll cross the river to Uruguay or you'll cross the river to Buenos Aires and we can go out and have some good red wine and eat dinner at 10 o'clock and laugh a lot and have a lot of fun. That will be great. (laughs) And I want to congratulate you for the work you do also. 
Thank you so much, Mario. You're well, welcome. I so appreciate you. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.